0: welcome to case by case this is a podcast brought to you by callum chain hello callum hello luke and luke zadkovich good to be here today and this is a super super exciting episode for us this is a big ticket guest yeah i feel like we've kind of we're getting into the big time here huh we've got big time guests coming on we've got james dapache all the way from Sydney, Australia.
1: It's great to be in the room with you both here. It's uh, it's almost as if I'm sort of sitting at one end of my own kitchen. It's uh, it's lovely to uh, <laughs> to have a chance to pop onto Case by Case. Look at this,
0: but isn't it good? It's good to hear the, the, the voice, the voice of the man himself from Coffee and a Case Note talking to us. Coffee, coffee and a Case Note. In some ways, inspirational enough starting this. Well, maybe I just use that as evidence to convince you that these things are a good idea. <laughs>
1: Ah, <laughs> uh, yes. Look, uh, uh, I'm delighted to be up your sleeve, Luke, for, uh, for for any argument you need to have with Callum in future. Happy, to, happy for you to wheel me out. I'm uh, delighted, delighted, delighted. It's very generous of you both.
0: And look, um, uh, uh, joking aside, uh, James is an absolute ab- expert on this area of law. Um, this is- we're, we're going to get into trust law today. Uh, we're going to talk about uh, derivative actions in trust law and how they're different from derivative actions in company law. Are they different? I'm not sure. We will find out. Um, that's going to be a big part of it. But uh, James is a, a director at Chamberlain's, um, uh, one of the well-known firms in, in Australia, um, really kicking a lot of goals out there. So we, we were delighted to see you make partner slash director um, a, a while ago. And um, yeah, welcome. Well, let's get into it. the The case that we're talking about today is, Uh, Mm. Gillespie and Gillespie's Cranes nominees PTY LTD this is a Supreme Court of New South Wales decision Uh, the hearing was on uh, in July 2022 um, and the orders were made in August 2022 and this decision was issued in September so really recent um, decision it's it's all about application so it's not a final final decision on on the merits but hugely important in the context of um, of this case so it was before Parker J it's uh, in the equity jurisdiction of the court so yeah where who's gonna kick this one off there's there's quite a bit to get through factually so I mean we'll probably pass over to James for a some
2: of them but in broad strokes this was a proper family bust up this was worse than a night of articulate at the chain family household this was this was <laughs> beyond even and they 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 really they've they've all there was a there was a fortune left in in trust um by by the father to it seems a number of children and some of the children are executors of the trust There are a number of claims that have stemmed out of the way that the trust sums have been divided among the beneficiaries, um, the role of the trustees. I think there are seven, maybe eight, different claims that are arising out of this, and and the the judge goes through them in brief in this judgment. But really, it's actually on a much kind of smaller and probably more interesting point of law that this that this case turns because it's an in, it's an interlocutory application, effectively trying to strike the claims out. Um, on the ground that well it i think that the, the claimant was trying to amend their amend their statement of case in a way that where they could you, they could sort of make the claim properly and the defendants were saying that we want to strike this whole claim out you can't change it and even if you could the way the way that you would change it which would, would be inadmissible or would or would be
1: unlawful so the, the claim has to go i was gonna say no boats no boats it's uh <laughs> i was sorry to bring you both a boatless case and no bills of lading or crazy cross jurisdictional finance or any uh, or any shenanigans like that if you can tell from that joke i'm a case-by-case fan so um callum it's it's nice to hear you summarize cases i'm I'm interested in as well. So I'm, I'm delighted to be here and um, I'm excited to chat to you about it as well. Uh, can, I, can I just agree in advance one other point you've made there, Callum, about the um, fine and interesting nature of this one? A lot of us, when we hear the phrase, the rule in Foss and Harbottle, will say, oh no, that's something I'm, I'm meant to remember what that is. What is that again? And it'll require us to do a Google search or something like that just as a refresher, because everyone listening sort of knows this rule and sort of can't remember it, but they know they know it somewhere. That's essentially the rule that says um, if there's wrong done to a company, then it's the company's claim to bring. So a shareholder can't, for example, go go and bring a claim if a shareholder feels someone's done wrong by the company. And the exception to the rule in Foss and Harbottle is what we've come to describe the derivative action where a shareholder or sometimes some other parties can come and stand in the shoes of the company and come and conduct that claim on behalf of the company. And the reason I'm I'm delighted to agree with you both today on the um, interesting elements of this case is that for the longest time, decades and decades, we've all been very content that The exception to the rule in FOSS and Harbottle that allows a shareholder in a company to bring a derivative action is available. But what we're here to have a chat about today is quite an interesting scenario where we've got a beneficiary of a trust who is looking to make a similar sort of application. And Callum, I think that leads to some of the issues that our respondents today, or indeed um, our applicants in the notice of motion were seeking to agitate, suggesting that legislation might have got in the way
2: I guess the first step is why why do we have this exception at all um, and that that in the company context is is largely for fraudulent actions by by major shareholders, such that the company itself wouldn't wouldn't be able to commence an action against the people who had done the wrong, because the company itself would be fettered by the votes of the shareholders and they would say, no, we're obviously not going to sue ourselves. So a minority shareholder can then take advantage of this exception in order to put themselves in a position where they can sue on behalf of the company that otherwise would be unable to bring the claim.
1: Precisely. Uh, And similarly with breaches of director's duties, that in accordance with the rule in Foss and Harbottle, that's a claim of the company. And so if I'm a shareholder in Luke and Callum, PTY Limited, and Luke and Callum decide it might be fun to funnel off the company's funds to uh, start a podcasting network or something like that, um, (laughs) then I as a shareholder might have no power to stop that. And indeed, Luke and Callum might decide, well, we're not going to cause the company to sue us. (laughs) We're just going to go on our merry way. And so it's sort of designed in part to allow a shareholder to, to exactly as you say, Callum, to sort of get at <laughs> lawyers using the word unfair. It, it always feels a bit silly, but but those transactions that are open to be characterised as a breach of duty, where that duty is owed to the company, um, yeah, that, that, that corporate issue arising.
0: And I, and I really like that you've started there, James, because um, we think of these derivative actions as being actions that are That arise primarily in a company context, um, and we 're used to them, we know them you know that they they kind of make a lot of sense, but trusts have been a lot uh, around longer than companies um, and actually you know go right back and and what we 're talking about today um, is a derivative action in a trust context, so you know trusts and companies have a lot of similarities about them, of course, um, but as we learn here. They are different. They they, they have they have a lot of similarities, but there are distinctions and, and the judge in in this case goes through some of those distinctions and looks at the history. And I've got to say I, I haven't spent a lot of time looking at the history of trust law uh since university. But I really Why not? I know, I know, I know. You know Netflix or, you know, trust law history. It's you know. Um Speaking of which, I really like that Extraordinary Attorney Woo. Have you seen Have you seen that? If you've not seen I'm it. I'm yet to. I've I'm I've to- to. I've told it to my team. No one's come back to me and said they've been able to watch it because they've got too much going on.
1: She Hulk has been assigned in our team. So our team's all about She Hulk at the moment. So I don't know if that if that, if that, if that stands up, but, uh, it's, it, it, look, it's good fun for so long. I think we're a couple it's of Extraordinary in.
0: attorney yeah. whoop. get that, get that in the mix. Let me, let me know
1: who that goes. We'll <laughs> uh, happen.
0: So, uh, yeah, I have not delved too much into the history of trust law, but uh, this, this judgment, I think, is, is a really interesting one for an interlocutory yeah. application. If you do want to look at the origins of derivative actions in company law and in um, in trust law without having a a treatise on it. I think it's a really well packaged up, um, judgment in that respect.
1: I agree with the greatest of respect. I think his Honour's done a fabulous job, um, really getting on top of these issues. There's very early on in the judgment paragraph two, there's a chilling sentence, if you'll allow me to, um, to sort of take, take some of it. So his honor sets out that this judgment sets out the reasons for a judgment that his honor made on 12 August. And his honour says it incorporates some supplementary research undertaken after that date, and some further thoughts designed to assist the parties. And, well, and you can just imagine just the chill down the spine of the uh, of the lawyers acting on reading that would have been pretty pretty significant. So I think his honours responded to to Luke the issue you raise of saying you know, there'd probably be a bit of value in traversing this law and getting across it. The fundamental reason for that, if you'll forgive me for jumping the gun slightly, is that our um, defendants, our sort of misbehaving sons, uh, as the plaintiff would put it, um, say essentially there's a section of the Corporations Act, which is our Australian piece of legislation that, that sort of controls companies, broadly speaking. Um, says that section 236 sub three essentially uh, destroys, as it were, voids um, the right of a person at general law to bring or intervene in proceedings aside from pursuant to that act. So essentially the nature of that argument is the act has abolished the derivative action aside from pursuant to this act. A derivative action in relation to a trust is captured within that definition, and so a derivative action in respect of a trust is abolished by the operation of the section. Now, I, I, I don't want to spoil the ending because I'm concerned you're both champing at the bit, but but essentially what his honour has... <laughs> essentially, wagon... No... I think Wagatha Christie is probably one of your best executions of the unfolding narrative. So, so I, 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 I don't accept that. Uh, Like I I respect your right to make that comment, Luke, but I, but I reject it. Um, I appreciate you raising it though. Uh, (laughs) uh, And so what, what his honor has to grapple with is yeah. Okay. Um, This section of the act attempts to abolish the form of derivative action that came before the act is this derivative action in trust law a derivative action that falls within this legislative definition? And that's the real piece of homework that his honour assigns himself uh, with the greatest of respect. Uh, And that uh, was evidently challenging for the lawyers and parties involved to really come to grips with the meat of. And it's it's that challenge of, um, what is the status? Oh, sorry. Firstly, is there a derivative action in respect to trusts? Secondly, if so, has it been abolished, as it were, uh, abolished in effect by the operation of this section of the Act? Um, and so traversing that stuff was was an interesting element of the judgment.
2: I think, and having gone away and, and looked at all of the history of, of the law of trusts, it it seems as though the, you know, ultimately he says, well, you, you can raise, you can run this argument, but you haven't run it properly yet. And actually your amendments also don't really run it properly either. So, so <laughs> take, take the benefit of, of my research, my experience, <laughs> excellent 33 page judgment and, uh, you know, use it to go back and reformulate your argument into
1: something sensible. It's, it's chilling. It's chilling, chilling stuff. Um, I don't, I don't believe in a higher power particularly, but the phrase, there but for the grace of God go I, I think sort of springs to mind working through this one. On those, on those pleading points, Callum, I, I think it's so constructive for you to raise them. And it's a good chance, if it's all right, for us to go into some of the finickety facts if, um, if, you, if anyone's having trouble sleeping. Um, so essentially, we've got this trust that is operated by a corporate trustee We've got four kids in this family. Remember, Callum described it correctly as a, as a, family, a family dispute. Uh, 100% would never happen in the ZFZ family, I'm certain. Um, but in essence, we've got the two eldest kids controlling the trustee company to do all this stuff that our fourth kid, our plaintiff today complains about.
0: The compulsory acquisition of, you know, a property <laughs> worth 50-odd million, oh, let's just allocate that, No, oh, what, more than 90% to two and 3% here, 3% there? I mean, I wondered whether there was more, to, when I was reading
2: I, these I facts, know, as you say there, some of them are cr- like, how how are they, they going to get away with that? Surely <laughs> not. But uh, you do wonder whether there's some kind of, you know, whether there's more to it in the, in, in the trust documents that we're not seeing, whether there's some, I don't know, whether, they, whether there was some kind of re- remunerative a- aspect to the management of the trust that is going into these, um, the way that the money is being divided. But
1: on its face, there
2: is just an outrageous uh, mess.
1: completely agree. Uh, I mean, in addition to that, we have uh, the transfer of uh, some of the property of the trust that was sort of a reasonably valuable crane business. So remembering that a business is an asset that has all its little component parts. That asset is just transferred out of the hands of the trust itself and into the hands of entities associated with our two quote, quote, bad guy brothers. Um, And we have this interesting income point that um, exercises our plaintiff son's mind and, uh, you you know, actions in relation to this application. And that is, it's going to sound a little complex on its face, but but hopefully, hopefully it makes sense. Um, Essentially the trust deed allows for um, payment of the income of the trust to be paid to the five principal beneficiaries. Those five principal beneficiaries are mum and the four kids. And income is to be paid to them unless there is a valid resolution directing some other payment. Now, as it happened over this 12-year period, uh, perhaps no one will be surprised to hear all the income was paid to entities associated with our two bad guy brothers. And what our son says is, uh, well that was a breach, either an alteration of the substratum of the trust, the really fundamental core of the trust, or otherwise was not a resolution uh, made in accordance with the proper administration of the trust. Now, what's interesting is that now that we have found out that a beneficiary can bring a derivative action, so a beneficiary can stand in the shoes of the trust or stand in the shoes of the trustee to go and pursue other people who might be um, holding some of the trust's money is we come exactly to the point you raised, Callum, the pleading point. And the reason this is interesting in this context is that our disappointed brother is claiming a number of things. He's claiming, firstly, removal of the trustee, which strikes me as pretty good, <laughs> a pretty good prayer <laughs> to raise in this context.
0: In the kind of context of relief sought, that's, that's kind of quite draconian isn't that that's like the nuclear option getting getting ousting the trustee entirely um there seems to be a number of steps that can be taken uh to direct the truck trust to do certain things or even um, uh, you know, uh, the, the court takes certain action using its administrative powers to, yes. to to look after certain affairs. Something can be hived off and run in the trust's name by other lawyers, things like that. A receiver
1: can be appointed similarly. Yeah, exactly. But that's yeah.
0: that's one of the big ones, isn't it? Going after the, yes. the, the recalcitrant um, trustee and having them replaced,
1: and it sort of leaves open the question of well, um, all all that is nonetheless available in this in this case, and so. Um, Luke, as you wisely raised, as we opened our chat today, this was just an interlocutory application. And the question is, are we allowed to bring this application? So I think that's that's going to be a something I'll be curious about. And frankly, I expect we'll never know because this is going to settle now. This reeks of uh, bringing everyone back to the table and saying, okay, now we've got the, um, you know, the shape of the playing field. Let's sit down and negotiate again because... I guess we are playing for sheep stations or shipping liners or, or whatever analogy we want to, we want to use. I think the commercial tensions will bring everyone to the table, but if I can just get to my point finally, after i um, getting sidetracked there, sorry. Uh, the issue was that our plaintiff brother was claiming a number of different sorts of relief. One form, if I can just take one example, is equitable compensation, essentially just the payment of money, Um, into the hands of plaintiff brother. Now, interestingly, that would not be appropriate relief for a derivative action. And so his honour assists uh, plaintiff brother's lawyers in understanding, hey, look, you might get leave to bring this application, but if you do, uh, and if, if you succeed, the relief you'll be getting will not be payment into your client's hands, it'll be payment into the corpus of the trust and so, yeah, Callum, as, uh, as our collective stomachs might have sunk at the idea of our our pleadings being redrafted by His Honour, um, this issue seemed to rear its head. Which, which
2: makes a lot of sense because the whole purpose of this derivative action is that you're bringing the derivative action on behalf of the company. That's why it's derivative. So you can't you can't bring the action on behalf of the company, but the company is also bringing it on behalf of you. That's, you know, that's almost a derivative on a derivative.
1: The derivative on a derivative is a really good way of putting it because the way I encounter it from time to time is you get a beneficiary of an estate. Uh, The estate contains shares in some family property. This is often old white rich guy owns a farm. You're sort of classic old white rich guy owns a farm. Presumably for you guys, old oh, white rich guy owns a shipping, <laughs> a shipping company or, or something like that. There are many other
0: nationalities involved in our in our field. That's it's true. you know all over the world. Um, yes. Certain nationalities in particular. So, um, <laughs> one, one springs
1: to mind. Yeah, exactly. And so you know, Farm Pty Limited dad's shares in Farm Pty Limited fall into the estate, and there might be some misbehaviour alleged by the beneficiaries of the estate in relation to Farm Pty Limited. Now, the beneficiaries of the estate have no status, have no standing to complain about the conduct of Farm Pty Limited, Because not only are they not shareholders in Farm Pty Limited, They are not legal owners of those shares. They are merely beneficial owners of those shares until distribution is made into their hands. So 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 you get exactly, Callum, or well, you refer to the double derivative position of, as a beneficiary, you try to cause the trustee to make a derivative application of their own in respect of the company. And it becomes this um, surprisingly complex um, legal position that spins out of what would appear to be a slightly more simple family position of, you know, some old person dies, the assets then flow through to the estate. And often, it, becomes a little more complex than that And uh, it, it
0: raises a really interesting aspect of this judgment and, and this might say
1: say a lot about me
0: <laughs> and the way that I think but I find procedural law, Fascinating. I, 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 I know, I know there are lots out there that say, you know, the uniform civil procedure rules and this, uh, just, uh, just give me the substance, you know, let's not fuss around with dates and procedure and this and that. And I've always enjoyed it. I, even, even when I did it at university, I've always enjoyed the procedural side of things and still do. It's probably why, I, you know, throw more to, to litigation in a way, but, um, uh, and arbitration but the the interesting thing about that is that procedural law and substantive law often kind of overlap in ways and, and 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 courts are also living breathing things and they what they are today is not what they might have been 300 years ago and mm. you know and in some ways they are too. Like so, so some of the original origins of a court, whether it's sitting in equity or it's the common law um, jurisdiction or it's admiralty in, in, in some other facets, looking back at the original origin of the jurisdiction of a court sometimes informs why we are where we are today, both in terms of procedure, in terms of substance. And we have some of that going on here with the courts, mm. um, equitable and uh, equity and um, administrative jurisdiction to make decisions in the administration of say a trust or or a company and how has that been dealt with differently in the substantive corporations act and then how is it dealt with as a matter of procedure and we have a really nice kind of case here that explores the nature of um, derivative actions in company law and and then you know with trust law but then also well What's the timing of this and, and when do you yes. need to seek leave to do certain things when you're working within the, the, the procedural law
1: that deals with this subject area? I couldn't agree more and I think it shows a bit of, with respect, real sort of courage and forward thinking you know, from the judiciary, there's a judgment you both have reported on, the name of which escapes me if I ever knew it, um, which related to an arbitration clause and, and the time at which an arbitrator is, whatever the correct term is, a- appointed or engaged, um, and distinguishing that from a contractual engagement. And what I found interesting about that and the way you both discussed it was the obviousness with which his honour in that case understood the real commercial nuts and bolts of the way arbitrators are engaged and the way arbitrations unfold and if you think back perhaps a generation ago the idea that a judge would hand down something like that in the absence of potentially expert evidence on the way arbitrations worked you know the the courage with 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 respect that it takes from the bench to take judicial notice of a pretty fine area of commercial maritime law um, uh, i i find it endlessly impressive um, that this living breathing thing that we all get to interact with um, manages to account for not merely the high-minded you know what happened 600 years ago when someone drafted the statute of frauds but the nuts and bolts we got to get whatever we got to get these boats moving through the whatever (laughs) through the Panama Canal or whatever we're going to get moving through, you, 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 you know the real rubber hits the road sort of element. So I couldn't agree more, Luke, that 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 the idea of the practical application of these high-minded concepts is um, is really exciting to me, really engaging.
2: Taking a slight tangent to that, but in some ways similar, what what we have here is legislation that kind of says one thing on its face, and the and the court saying, well, actually, it doesn't. Quite mean that because we've got to <laughs> we've got to interpret it in this way to give respect to the his- history of trust law, and it, in some ways it's almost a cautionary tale against over codification and over legislating for things. It's very difficult to replace not only the depth of law that you have throughout the history of the of the common law, but I guess more importantly, it's very very difficult to to replace the flexibility that you have um, within within a common law system when you introduce. You know, a, legisl- a legislative hard stop on a particular rate.
1: Right. Uh, I think that's so true and that um, it sort of almost leans into that um, similar to the contra preferentum sort of doctrine of if we're going to knock something out, if we're going to remove some rights, then we're going to want to do it in the clearest language possible. And so to the extent that there's any ambiguity, we're going to read that against closing the door on a claim and it's you know it's bizarre that we're sitting here you know tens of thousands of kilometers apart talking about what drafts people in the late 1990s in Australia were doing messing around with you know essentially you know colonial company law but I think it does reflect precisely as you say Callum the fineness of calibration that can be required to get these things right and the real you know butterfly effect the the ripples you can see years and years down the track where what are we going to do with this 50 million bucks the government paid our company um, can really sort of come to the fore as well so it's it's a really interesting probably again that interplay between the uh, not quite theoretical but 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 the sort of high-minded and the practical
2: This looks like a good claim
1: otherwise you
2: know just on on the few facts that we have this does look like one where the bad guys have have done the bad
1: thing do you guys have the pub test i feel like it uh, i feel like it passes the pub test.
2: i know i know the test that you that you're referring to and it feels like it passes the pub test yeah
1: so you'd so you'd grant them leave not to not to engage in uh in any undue speculation but it's in it's an interesting one
2: what you often see and i think maybe There's a very, very famous judge, as I'm sure you know, Lord Denning over here, who always was kind of known for finding the right answer and then finding the right law afterwards. I feel very much like
0: that was the case here. Mm. Uh, it, 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 even as, as we touched on with the pleading points at the end it, it was very much like okay we're going to give you some rope here go fix up <laughs> your pleadings and then all of you i don't want to see you again go and sort this out <laughs> right yeah it, it's not going to be struck out on some technical basis the pleadings are going to be updated you're going to be able to claim equitable cons- uh, uh, compensation if you'd like mm. um and, but really what, what, what the directive is, is go and try and resolve it. That, that's what I kind of took away from the ending. But there's some, some interesting points in through that. Like, you know, where mm. the, the distinction between a, a corporate trustee, um, and a, and a normal trustee and how that fits within, uh, mm. 2632. Um. And it's, it's not as obvious as, as, as one would seem. And what was interesting was there's not much law on this, right? There's a case kind of, you know, saying, well, a corporate trustee has, can use the benefit of, of the corporations act, but you know, that's not really, um, binding. Um. <clears throat> And there was another case that kind of went the other way, uh, but also wasn't directly on point. And so it, it, it is, it, it comes to your point, Callum, that it's really hard to codify in a way that Um, covers the field. Mm. And if you are going to cover the field or take on different areas, like, you know, the Corporations Act doesn't, you know, jump out at you as the the Corporations and Trusts Act. Like, if you're going to delve into dealing with another area of law, you've got to do it and do it properly and do it expressly. Yeah. More importantly. That's exactly right. You wouldn't, and and it's a very
2: good argument in a way that's brought by the, brought by the uh, defendants here because they've, they've found a, decent argument mm. that on its face is, you know, has quite sensible grounds to say that the um, that the claim should be struck out.
0: Mm. Well, it's also, also coming back to what I was saying about procedure is that one of the reasons why the defendants were saying this should be struck out and um, you need to look to the Corporations Act is because there's a framework for bringing yep. these types of actions. You know, there's steps that you have to get along the way and they were saying here, well, you, you should have got um, leave of the court, uh, to do this first. Um, and, and so again, it's, it, when you, when you have kind of a procedure for these things, then that should be followed. So I, I can kind of see where the defendants were coming from mm-hmm. say, well, look, you can't just go directly like this. You have to go through the various steps. And ultimately, the courts are, well, actually, a, a derivative action in, in trust is different in nature. Um, very similar, got a lot of hallmarks of, of derivative action in, in company law, but there are distinctions to it. And I, that was the area of this decision that I, I I found really interesting.
1: My jaw nearly hit the floor, frankly, Luke, on first pass, because I do a lot of, I mean, my, my practice is pretty much solely sort of shareholder disputes, partnership disputes these days. Um, and the, you know the, the amount of advice we give of, sorry, you're a beneficiary, And the area that we call corporate oppression, that I think is referred to slightly differently um, internationally, essentially minority shareholder style relief, um, is not available to the beneficiary of a trust. Uh, And we've not offered the same advice, but I've had the superficial view that the position would be similar for the beneficiary of a trust seeking to bring a derivative action, we'd have to come about it a different way, try to remove the trustee, try to get a receiver appointed, try to get the court to um, direct the trustee to behave in a certain way and uh, luckily Uh, I can't think back over my career to having given the advice that one does not exist. But um, it was quite striking to me that um, his honour was so very firm and so very clear in this judgment to say, yes, one exists. And yes, it was not abolished by the operation of of section 236 sub three. And so... I sort of found this, and this sounds really weird, but hopefully we're all enough law nuffies in here that that you'll come with me on this point. Um, it was almost quite an emotional experience for me reading this judgment to <laughs> <laughs> it was like learning, you know, learning that just something new existed in the universe that I thought I knew so well. Like, oh, really, really? That that's the case? It's like oh, it was like oh, a yeah, Okay, now, yeah, yeah now yeah.
0: you say, and we've had that before, haven't we? When some areas that we've traversed and traversed and traversed and it's yep. been put in a certain way, or and often it comes from the bench. The bench will come yep. up with yep. some way of looking at it, and you will be like. Ah, yes. yes. It's a nice thing about the common law as well, and I guess this is a
2: slightly weird in, weird interplay between legisla- legislation and, and common law. But the idea with some of our contract cases where there's, you know we haven't codified the rules of, of engagement of contracts, but the idea mm. that not not only is this what the law says now. But actually, the law has always said this. Just no one had no one had written it down yet. So the, the the law has always been this way. This has always existed throughout your entire life.
1: Yeah, you could, you could have asked us any time. We would have given the same answer. Yeah. You
2: know, there were some people who made, made errors along the way, but the law never actually said what they thought it said. <laughs> And you go back to the, you know, yeah, you have these developments on developments, but it's always on the principle that
1: it's always been that way. Uh, Lord Denning would call it the, what, the beauty of the common law, the majesty, something like that. He, he'd conjure up a good term for us, no doubt.
0: How did you find, uh, reading an Australian case? And, and did you, was there anything? Cause I, you know, I, I was housed or schooled in exactly. Australian cases first. And then I, you know, spent uh, so much of my career in, in England and, and then the US, but I'm interested for you to, because this is like this is proper meat and potatoes type uh, Australian law here. I mean, it's much more similar to English law than the U.S. judgments. Yeah, yeah. M- much more
2: the kind of the exposition of the ideas and drawing mm. it all together is something that in in the U.S. I find they're much more. You know, this is this is the case. These I'm relying on these cases. This is the answer, whereas in the in certainly in the English cases and also in this in this case the the judge will really go through the you know the developments in the law all the all the points of interest that they find and I, for me that's a, a nice way to read a judgment What well, i was going to ask what what's the what's the kind of value in terms of precedent of this judgment where does it where does it
1: sit in the australian moderate um uh moderate i think um I'll use it. <laughs> and we'll see if it gets tested. Look, people people get rolled on this stuff, and and good 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 judges get rolled in New South Wales, which I think I would arrogantly say is the leading jury the leading uh, well, the leading state jurisdiction in Australia. Look, Luke, I hope you'd accept that. You I think-
0: practice in Sydney, although I'm from the gong, right? So, you know, don't hold that against me. Don't hold that against yeah. <laughs> me.
1: <laughs> shipping, it all comes back to shipping, doesn't it? It's good. It's, it's good. It's in, your, it's in your blood, Luke. It's awesome. Um, but 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 I think there'd be real, real, real value here. Um, and, uh, I mean, these are the cases that go to appeal, if someone's going to appeal them. Um, Justice Parker is with the greatest of respect, a well-respected judge, and and my inkling is that this has got real power and have real echoes um, through the way. Uh, people, people like us in our little jurisdiction, are going to be advising clients in these sorts of situations,
2: and and the way it's drafted as well as a judgment, I think, also helps the helps the value of these. You know, even even if it doesn't strictly have value in other states, and I don't know how the states interact with each other in terms of precedent, but even if not, then it seems like it's quite difficult to get away from the,
1: from the the argument. I think His Honour understood the um, solemnity with which the task he was confronted with, the, with the greatest of respect. Um, I think he understood that this was a pretty serious issue, and that people would be paying attention to what was handed down, and so he took the task. Um, he addressed it with with appropriate rigor and and serious and sincere rigor, and I think the outcome we get from it is a is a pretty, yeah, again, respectfully, a, a, a very useful judgment. I
0: think. So, do you do you want to just? Um... Perhaps offer a few words, kind of pulling it all together. The kind of ratio of, yeah. of of the case. What what's the real takeaway here for for our listeners that are you know interested in in trust law?
1: Yes. Uh, well, I think the heart of it for me is having an additional path to advise your beneficiary clients on their rights. I think it's very easy to think of uh, potentially family office clients where that family office may have some substantial assets, might be located in different jurisdictions, might have one of those diagrams, a lot of circles and lines and a lot of triangles. And you might think, well, how on earth are we gonna get through that triangle to connect up to that line Or, or whatever it might be? This is a case that allows us to advise our beneficiary clients, at least in some jurisdictions to say, that if you're the trustee of your trust or your family's trust has misbehaved, then there is an opportunity for you to not take the violent step of the removal of the trustee, which can be a really difficult application to bring, but to approach the uh, exercise with what may be a lower threshold to really apply pressure to improve the conduct of that trustee. So what I say is this is a... Clear reminder of a weapon in the arsenal that, as Callum would say, has always existed. And we were just reminded, um, has always existed. Um, So it's a good reminder to us that this exists when we're advising our beneficiary clients. And I also think with the greatest of respect to our fellow practitioners, that that these concepts can get a bit fiddly when we talk about who's a shareholder and who's an officer and who's a director and what's a company and what's a trustee and what's a corporate trustee. And these things can sometimes get a little bit intertwined, that it's a nice reminder to say, a company's like a trust, it's not a trust. A derivative action is available for a company and it is also available for a trust, but they are different things, even though if they look similar. So I think it's a good refresher for us as nuts and bolts advisors but i also think conceptually it's a good way for us to keep our thinking nice and grounded as to what are these entities we're actually interacting with day to day week to week month to month
0: brilliant yep i think that that sums it up that sums it up look thank you very much james for being on i i have thoroughly thoroughly enjoyed this um it's been good fun, good fun, and then let's do it again sometime. Like uh, yes, yeah, maybe I mean, maybe yes. will have to put him on I've a had boat. A great time. Let's put him on a boat's case one time. Yeah. <laughs> no, no, no. <laughs> <laughs> we can flip it around next time. <laughs> but <laughs> but jo- jo- joking aside, it's been a real pleasure. Thank you for your time. <laughs> we know a lot of a lot of time goes into putting these together, so we we thoroughly appreciate. It. I'm, I'm sure our listeners will um, have enjoyed the episode today. Thank you, listeners, for for being with us. I, if you've um, if you're hearing this, you've stayed till the end. So, thank you very much. I've just got a, a small ask. Please do check out James dapachi on Coffee and a Case Note. You can find him, I think, on just about every platform these days. But your usuals like LinkedIn, YouTube, Insta, TikTok. I think is in there.
1: Only twenty six thousand followers uh, on TikTok. So you know, yeah, we're giving it, a, we're giving it a crack. That's my brag for the for the day, yeah. and that that's that's for your dancing, right? You know, that's not for your your <laughs> <laughs> mainly my parkour, yeah. So I <laughs> I do a lot of street running. It's great. <laughs> that
0: that was a joke. I'm working up to getting uh, getting case by case on TikTok for us, Callum. I haven't told you that yet, but okay. <laughs> um, uh, look, Site, like, Look, thank you, and and if you do subscribe um, to us, we, we'd be very grateful. Um, we're on, on YouTube, Spotify, and um, Google. Where else? Ah. Apple. Um, so, yeah. Uh, thanks again. And until next time, everyone, uh, take care. Callum. Cheers, thanks. everybody. Take it easy. Thanks to both.